It's been the practice of some churches throughout church history to sing at the end of a service. For those speaking, I would love that. (laughs) I sing my voice completely almost gone at the truths, and then it's speaking time. So in moments like these, I sort of wish we had that tradition on this particular moment. But the book of Ephesians, stay right there. The passage is before you. Turn there if you weren't able to turn there just a moment ago. I want us to just slowly have our eyes continue to walk phrase by phrase through the passage we just read this morning. But before we really dive in together today, uh, let's gain a bit of context The book of Ephesians is a glorious and stunning summary of the Christian gospel. Its themes are as grand and expansive as any book in the Bible. Its symmetry is beautiful as the book grounds its hard-hitting imperatives for Christian living that are contained in the latter half of the book and the mind-blowing theological anchor points at the beginning of the book. This letter has been treasured by the church throughout the ages. It's been called the crown of St. Paul's writings, the divinest composition of man, and the queen of Paul's epistles, second only to Romans. It was John Calvin's favorite letter. It was read to the Scottish reformer John Knox daily upon his deathbed. Princeton President John Mackay said it was the most authoritative and most consummate compendium of our holy Christian faith, a letter that is pure music and truth that sings. Ephesians, as we will see in greater detail this morning, enlarges our vision as the veil, as it were, is lifted, giving us insight into the mind and the heart of God, who calls out a people for His name, creating a new society of saints who live by new standards and enjoy new relationships within this new community that he is creating, and who will live eternally to the praise of his glorious grace. You and I desperately need the message of this book to refresh our spiritual eyesight this morning. So before we proceed any further, would you pause with me in prayer? Father, There are paths that seem too arduous and challenging for our present conditioning to hike. There are theological mountains that seem too grand, that we're just not up for it. And yet I pray you'd give us courage this morning to hike and to not give up and to see the vistas that are ours if we we make the effort And not even of our own effort, Lord, but if your spirit opens our eyes to behold. Lord, you've given us deep, amazing truths that we are supposed to do something with. Not only consider and treasure, but to live out. I pray the clarity of your word would be as clear as it ever is this morning. And I pray that the the pinpoint accuracy, the life-giving effect of your word would have its way in our midst today. Please do this for your own glory. It's in Christ we ask. So before delving into Paul's letter to the Ephesians, it's helpful for us to know 
a bit about the culture and the context to which he's writing. The city of Ephesus was one of the most well-known and important cities in the ancient world. And as a port city on the west coast of Asia, the city was economically well-positioned. But perhaps more significantly, the city boasted itself as being the temple warden of the goddess Artemis, or Diana. The temple guardian, caregiver, they had been tasked by the gods to care for the temple of Artemis. This was no small religious sideshow. Her temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world and was central to literally everything that happened in the city, whether religious or economically speaking. The temple, roughly three times the size of the Parthenon in Greece, was held up by 160-foot marble-laced pillars. She was believed to be... Artemis, that is, the daughter of Zeus and the twin sister of Apollos. And she was known as the goddess of the hunt, beautifully represented as a cross between a cow and a wolf. I emphasize beautifully represented. Not sure how that works. You might uh, think back to the allusion in Acts chapter 19, where we see Demetrius, the silversmith, who made silver uh, shrines to Artemis. And he begins to have quite the problem with what's going on. With that, that Paul figure is persuading people. Not only, as, it, as he says, his, his logic goes, not only for the, the problem it's going to be economically for us, our trade, our profession is going to diminish here. But more significantly, that the magnificence of Diana might be, might come to nothing, as the text says. So even greater than his personal issues with his own wealth being kind of chopped in half or something like that, is this corporate sense of the magnificence and the splendor and the all-sufficiency of the great goddess Diana. It was everything. So when we think of the book of Ephesians, we have to place ourselves in that context. This temple was a location of terrible immorality and prostitution. It served as an asylum for criminals where they were safe from punishment or being arrested as long as they were within the temple confines. And all in all, this was one of the most wicked places in the ancient world. And it is the culture where the Ephesian Christians lived and worked. Like us today, they needed to be reminded of some things. They needed to be reminded of their sinfulness before the Lord. God's undeserved electing love, Christ's work of redemption, and the Spirit's enabling of a life of holiness to the glory, to the glory of God. And all those things over and against all competition. Let's look together at verses 1 and 2. Let's consider the opening of this great letter. Writing from prison... Paul identifies himself in verse 1 as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So the letter is directed to the saints who are in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. So Paul wants to make it known that he is a, he's a messenger. 
He's not an artist coming up with his own work. he's He's a baton passer. He's a messenger. He is an apostle for someone else, for the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the will of God. That is to say, his message is one that brings attention not to himself, but to Christ. His message is for the faithful in Christ Jesus. So this means more than those who have good attendance records at the local house church gatherings there in Ephesus. This isn't that sort of faithful, but the saints who are filled with faith in Christ Jesus. The faithful. In typical fashion, Paul opens with grace and peace. I don't think there is a more fitting word to encapsulate or group of words to encapsulate not only Paul's understanding of the essential nature of the new covenant, but also as an entry point into what he is about to unveil in verses 3 through 14. Verses 3 through 14, as some of you may know, is one continuous sentence in Greek. 202 Greek words to be exact. One scholar called it the most monstrous sentence conglomeration that has ever been found in the Greek language. (laughs) Thankfully, our English translation is able to break it up somewhat for us and to make five sentences out of it. But what we find in verses 3 through 14 is nothing short of majestic, for it is an extended overflow of praise for God's glorious plan of redemption. It exalts each member of the Trinity, highlighting their respective work to accomplish the Father's will to the praise of His glorious grace. So these verses have been pretty consistently debated as to what they are. What is this? It it departs a little bit from the normal Pauline way of beginning his letters. Is it a blessing? A, A eulogy in that sense? Is it a doxology? Is it a hymn? Is it a poem? Is it some kind of combo of each or something else entirely? What is this grand thing before us? But there can be no doubt as to the intentional symmetry, repetition, and yet movement through these verses as they form this awe-inspiring prelude to the rest of Paul's letter. And because it possesses all the qualities of what you'd expect to find in a hymn, in particular a hymn throughout Scripture, and because it has served as a hymn throughout church history, we've already sung two songs this morning that are direct paraphrases of this exact passage. So in in essence, we've had the scripture reading about three times already today. I will refer to it as as a hymn this morning. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So verse 3 provides this opening melody line, as it were, that is repeated and supported over and over and over again, all the way through verse 14, and thematically through the remainder of the book. Verse 3 is Paul's fitting tribute, his blessing to God the Father, who has first and foremost blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So why? 
Does Paul bless God? Because Paul has been infinitely blessed through Christ with every spiritual blessing. So these blessings are not spiritual in the sense that they're immaterial or they're reserved only in the heavenly places as to say that no blessings ever occur in tangible ways in the here and now. That's not the point. But that they come to us as a result of the Spirit of God. It reflects the giver. They are spiritual blessings provided to us by God the Spirit. So from this perspective, all members of the Godhead are praised in verse 3 alone. Verse 3 is a, is a summary of, of this entire section, 3 through 14. A header, if you will, telling us why God is to be praised, because He is the responsible party for this glorious plan of redemption. Paul's praise was not simply because he himself was awaiting eternal riches, but because he was coming to see something. He was coming to see the splendor of an entire church throughout the ages of redeemed sinners made holy and blameless by the blood of the Lamb. And that glory is way bigger than Paul. And it's way bigger than you and I making a decision to follow Christ in and of ourselves. As great as that is. Verse 3 Leaves us wondering though, but what, but how did all this take place? How did it all take place? We naturally long to, to know more, and thankfully we're given more. Let's enter stanza one, if you will. Verse one. I can't say verse because then you'll be confused. Verse four, stanza one. That makes sense? Am I losing hymnology words here on us? You sing them weekly, stanzas. Let's enter this first stanza. And where we see in verses 4 through 6, the Father's eternal wise plan. Verses 4 through 6, the Father's eternal wise plan. Verse 4 reads, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. So Paul's praise spotlights God the Father's choice in eternity past, to elect a particular people, His church, those who would stand in the congregation of the righteous, as Psalm 1 says, and who would be holy and blameless before Him. Spiritual blessings flow from God through Jesus to His redeemed. While He sends rain on the just and the unjust, Scripture tells us, Spiritual blessings, spiritual blessings are reserved for God's elect. It is a unique gift. God's sovereign choice of some over others is His consistent prerogative throughout Scripture. We see in Deuteronomy chapter 7, God tells Israel, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. At Jesus' baptism, God the Father speaks, This is My Son, My Chosen One. Listen to Him, we read in Luke 9. The angels are referenced in 1 Timothy 5 as God's chosen angels. 
And in over a dozen passages, Christians are referred to as the chosen of God. Note that arrangement of the three pronouns in verse 4. He chose us in Him. He, God, chose us, His church, in Him, Christ. We can't quite wrap our minds around this. We can't. But apparently, before the foundations of the world, before creation was ever spoken into existence, and before we were ever created, and before Jesus had left the glories of heaven, God determined to make us His children through Christ. Now it's been said that everyone finds the doctrine of election difficult to one degree or another. As one scholar writes, Didn't I choose God? Someone asks indignantly, to which we must answer, Well, yes, indeed you did, and freely, but only because in eternity God had first chosen you. Well, didn't I decide to follow Christ? Asks someone else, to which we must reply, Yes, indeed you did, and freely, but only because in eternity God had first decided. What we must allow here is tension. We need tension in believing in the legitimacy and the full responsibility of our actions before God in this life while simultaneously trusting in a sovereign guiding providence of a God who has all things determined, including our choice to believe His gospel or not to believe His gospel. And it is all in accord with the pleasure of His will. This could be an extended, long discussion here this morning. But I thought it might be worthwhile to say, it's moments like this in the, in the preaching of Scripture where I'm thankful for Bible classes. Part of a faithful ministry of a church is to not only preach, but to teach We need those times to take this concept that who knows how this is falling on you. And quite honestly, if we're going to make it to verse 14, I've got to keep moving. (laughs) But the joy of even having a designated time where we can come together on Sunday mornings is to say, I need to know more. I need to know as much as I can regarding this tension to which you speak. I need to learn more so that my heart can rejoice in it more, right? So Dan's course on providence, or the recent course on the doctrine of salvation, wrestled through this very matter. I'd encourage us to enhance and to love that, that discipline in the life of our church. Perhaps one of the best questions, though, that we can ask at this point in the text is what effect does this doctrine have upon you? How does the doctrine of election and God's choice of you fall upon your heart? Are you the kind of person who catches wind of this conversation arising among friends or family, and it piques your interest, and you see it as a time to, sh- to shine and to enter into a sparring match, 
showing off your theological knowledge. That's pride. Or does this truth only cause you to get angry because you believe it's the antithesis to zeal and evangelism and a doctrine that only encourages sleepy, lazy Christians? Suffice it to say, we are given this information so that we can mirror Paul's use of it, which is worship to the praise of his glorious grace. Is that your response? If not, there's a malfunction happening that's taking place somewhere in our hearts. Verse 5 continues, In love... Well, the end of verse 4. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. God's love motivated His work of predestining His chosen people for adoption so they might be His sons and daughters through Christ. So to disregard or even to dislike The doctrine of election or predestination is in essence to say there is an aspect of God's love that you don't care to know. For it was God's love that motivated His sovereign choice. What did adoption look like though in in Paul's day as this is what this choice resulted in? Well, adoption in Paul's day was a Roman practice that involved a patron with no heir of his own, giving every bit of his possessions upon his death to an adopted son. It was quite frequent. When this person was adopted, all of his former debts and responsibilities and relationships were absolved and done away with. And he was given literally new relationships and privileges. A man could go from being a slave to a member of the Senate overnight. You were given a new name and a whole new life. In essence, this is a perfect picture for what God is doing with these people who will be marked out in eternity past. They will be transformed entirely. Paul ends the first God-centered stanza of this hymn with the refrain in verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace. The glory that will be His and the praise that God will receive is the result of His perfect orchestration of redemption. There is no glitch. How are we to rightly understand this though? Perhaps a question has been raised in your mind. Isn't this vanity on God's part? Writing a script for the history of the world that results in his own fame and his own honor and his own glory being extolled by representatives of every people group on the face of the globe, even as the call to worship alluded to this morning, even today, there's praise being circulated throughout this globe, and he made it to be that way. Isn't that just self-serving and presumptuous? I thought God was selfless and loving. Not self-consumed. Well, our problem here is where we're beginning. We've got a faulty starting point. 
So you and I will often measure God by human standards and will always come up wrong. God cannot be measured by human standards. There's always, by way of illustration, an ongoing debate among sports enthusiasts as to which sports athlete is the GOAT, the greatest of all time. For those of you unfamiliar with this recent abbreviation, no matter the sport, the debate is constant, and it is endlessly subjective and speculative. Just this week, the Internet reacted to Los Angeles Laker LeBron James' recent boast that he considered himself to be the greatest of all time. It was interesting, though, to see the negative backlash against his shameless self-promotion, receiving highly negative criticism that people who are the greatest of all time should never proclaim it for themselves. So the point is, even our culture knows something is coming off the rails when the greatest of men call for their own worship. However, God is not like us. And when He calls us to worship Him, it is the kindest, most loving thing He could ever do for us. Because we find in that worship our created purpose and our highest joy. It is the kindest thing God could ever do. Therefore, to see His own glory as the end of His plan of redemption is the most loving thing He could do for you. Do we believe that? Do we love to make much of the glory and the greatness of God? The second stanza of this hymn shines a spotlight now on the Son's cross-centered mission. We first saw the Father's eternal wise plan. We now focus The second member of the Trinity comes into spotlight. The Son's cross-centered mission. Only God's chosen adopted sons and daughters can rightly say, in Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us. We sang that exact phrase this morning. God's plan in eternity past comes into focus in the present as Jesus' substitutionary atonement is now the source of Paul's praise. We may speak of redeeming a coupon or we may use the word redeem in reference to someone who somehow compensates for a real blunder that happened and we say they really redeemed themselves. But redemption in Paul's mind here is this, deliverance by payment of a price. Deliverance by payment of a price. The term was especially applied to the ransom paid towards slaves in the Roman world. But Paul here equates redemption with forgiveness. The blood of Christ with the pardoning of our trespasses. These things, for whatever idea or notion might creep in, are never to be separate. It was by means of the blood of Christ that we have been redeemed and then forgiven of God, by God. Paul equates 
these things here, but he writes to Titus of Christ that he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So God is to be praised, Christian, today and each day because Jesus died for your sins. Jesus died for your sins. Election, predestination, adoption, redemption, forgiveness. These might sound like chapter titles in a theology book, but you have to learn the meaning behind these words so that you can love them. God's overarching plan of redemption is intended to be studied and deeply considered and then worshipped as a way of life for every Christian. Now, if these spiritual blessings that we have been discussing, if they don't excite your heart this morning, and perhaps you wouldn't even claim, really, to, to be a follower of Jesus, consider, though, what life would look like without these spiritual blessings, without these graces. And for a moment... Can you visualize, just try, can you visualize God's hatred for sin? Particularly your sin. See his anguish as his beloved son Jesus now steps forward to offer his life in your place. And see now the pleasure of the Father's face at the pronouncement of your forgiveness, knowing you have been now adopted into a royal family forever. Now imagine that being true for thousands of people streaming by and you witness this. It's amazing. But it's not your story. You're not included. You chose to praise other things in this life. You, you chose to praise foolish, trivial things and to glory in all the very things that God clearly told you He despises. And you lived a life spiritually dead in trespasses and sins, as Paul will later write in the next chapter. Eternal torment is in hell is the only just reward for those who snub their noses at such glorious grace and forgiveness. And so it will be for those who remain unforgiven, unredeemed, and unadopted because of their unrepentant hearts. This is the call of the gospel by Christians in every age. Hear it. May the Spirit of God draw your heart to worship it. And it can be your story. Verses 7 through 10 tell us how God has lavished upon His redeemed the riches of His grace in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as the plan for the fullness of time. To unite all things in Him, 
things in heaven and things on earth. Now, spoiled, rotten, it might appear, are the adopted children of the heavenly king, for he's withheld no treasure chest of his grace to them. Furthermore, God has granted discernment and understanding to his saints so they might know the mystery of his will. Paul speaks in numerous, uh, numerous times in his epistles of the mystery of the gospel in different combinations using that word. In fact, he will spend much time in Ephesians 3 revealing the nature of this mystery. He says in chapter 3, verse 6, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He says it was not known to the sons of men in other generations, but it is now revealed to the apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Now while he might from time to time, while we might from time to time, say that there are certain ways of God that are just downright mysterious, and we might even sing that hymn from time to time, God moves in a mysterious way. But the mystery of the gospel here, from Paul's perspective, is something that God has now disclosed in full color. And what is the full disclosure of this mystery look like? Verses 9 and 10. That God's eternal purpose would be set forth in Christ at the perfect time, the fullness of time, and with the goal of uniting all things in Him, earthly as well as cosmic. The fullness of time. As we said, we, Paul is just causing us. He's, he's turning our heads and saying, nope, nope, look right here. This is what I want you to glory in. This glorious plan of redemption has no faulty areas. It is glitch-free. It's amazing. The timing was impeccable. God can be trusted. Isn't timing everything? Even in our world. Timing in baseball is everything if you want to connect on a pitch at the plate and get on base, right? Timing in the workplace can be the difference between a job being completed correctly or having to be redone completely because a step was hurried along that ruined the end product in some way. Timing in conversation can be incredibly significant and important when it comes to providing just the right kind of comfort at just the right time that met a need that perhaps wouldn't have been there or wouldn't have been as acute at another time. Or even in a more lighthearted context, a well-timed one-liner at just the opportune moment, can leave a room of people laughing for hours. Timing. Well, God the Father's timing was perfect when He sent Christ. The timing of His cross-centered mission was impeccable, and the goal was glorious, to bring all the universe under the authority and the lordship of Christ Jesus. Verse 11 teaches us that in Christ we have obtained an inheritance and it is issued to us according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. So in other words, you can take your inheritance check to the bank because the Apostle Peter adds, 
This inheritance is imperishable. It's not going anywhere. It's undefiled. It's unfading. And it's kept in heaven for you. What an amazing promise. Verse 12 rounds out the end of this hymn's second stanza that has been focused on Christ's present work in bringing to pass the sovereign plan of God. And as we might expect, we find we are reminded of all that is taking place so we might be to the praise of His glory. And then finally, in verses 13 and 14, we see God the Spirit's role in redemption. In verses 13 and 14, we read, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. So in these verses, we see the Spirit's work in us now. His work now. But it's also a foretaste of what is to come. The Spirit is described as a promise, as a seal, and as a guarantee for God's chosen people. So He's the promised Holy Spirit because God literally promised to send Him through the Old Testament prophets and even through the words of Jesus Himself. At Pentecost, He came in power and continues His ongoing work today. But the Spirit is a seal in that God has marked us out as His own. We bear the, the branding, as it were, of our Master by virtue of the gift of His Spirit. This reminds us who our Lord is. And it communicates to all who we belong to. It is the Spirit that marks us out and assures us. And lastly, the Spirit is also God's guarantee that to us, His inheritance that we long for will indeed be ours in time. This pledge, this down payment is not to be undersold. It's not to be understated. The Spirit is our guarantee that God will bring us all the way home and that we will enjoy the final installment of all that God has promised us. What hope. The third and the final refrain to the praise of His glory concludes the introductory hymn to this great book. It reminds us that in each epoch of redemptive history, the call is the same, to worship the triune God for the spiritual blessings that He has poured out on us in Christ. As we think, concluding, summarizing, application, thoughts this morning, we encourage you with, with five ideas, very briefly. First, worship. That can't be missed. Let's resolve, as a people, to live to the praise of God's glorious grace. This is worship. Assessing the weightiness of His glory. And considering His character and His actions and allowing His heart, allowing your heart and your mouth to release then praise. In gathered worship on Sunday mornings, in private worship, in family worship, in other contexts, 
keep the spiritual blessings in Christ ever before your eyes. So worship is not far behind. Second is holiness. God's people are called to holy, blameless living. This is clear as the point of our being chosen of God and being called out is that we should be holy and blameless before Him as verse 4 teaches us. How is the pursuit of holy living going for you, Christian? Have you downright thrown in the towel in certain areas? Has pride caused you to completely miss sinful patterns that perhaps are abundantly evident to others? Are you pursuing holiness in your home and in your work context, in your neighborhood? Nothing exalts God's glory quite like the adornment of holy lives among His redeemed. Third is humility. Allow the knowledge of God's sovereign, choosing, electing love to humble you. I don't know how it has become a stereotype that those who love this doctrine the most seem to be the most proud Christians. That ought never go together. This should humble us. If pride begins to rise in your heart, take up the word and seek to kill it before it becomes a cancer that preys on these majestic doctrines. Worship, holiness, humility. Fourth is the word evangelize. Call those without Christ to the joys of being adopted into His family and having your sins forgiven by a Redeemer. Allow, interpret the praise that is, that is, and, the, and the joy, the glory that is yours from this text as something that you only find highest joy in in the corporate nature of it. Don't stop with yourself or your own heart. See that the, really what is spearheading so much of Paul's enthusiasm here is that it's not just him. It is the, the saints of all time praising Jesus the Lamb that he is excited and thrilled to be able to see more and more of this glorious mystery. Interpret that, channel that as your motivation to share this amazing news with others. And fifthly, is to walk by the Spirit. Paul will speak in this way in Galatians, but it accords perfectly with this text. It makes no sense that we would receive our first installment of God's blessing through the Spirit, in the Spirit, in the gift of the Spirit, only to have Him expelled from our daily lives. That makes no sense. So let's ask God for the help to see our need to live moment by moment by the Spirit. Life in the Spirit. There are so many things that God has not chosen to tell us. Wouldn't you agree? There's so many things that He's withheld. But in this text, this morning, God has pulled back the curtain and He's told us exactly what He's up to and what He is continuing to accomplish for His glory. 
So let the grand sweep of redemption's story wake you to a rekindled love for our Savior. And may this all be to the glory of His grace. Let's pray.